Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that explores human behavior through a behavioral science lens. I'm Kurt. And I'm Tim. We like to explore why we do what we do questions with researchers and authors and practitioners in a conversational setting in order to bring those insights to you. And to do it in a fun and hopefully enlightening way. Right, Tim? Well, you and I certainly have fun. Yes, we do. I'm not so sure if we're enlightening all the time. That's my hesitation. Okay. So you and I may not be enlightening, which is very true, but I think our guests are very enlightening. Ah, Yeah. Okay. okay, Yeah. We got that going for us. Yeah. Yes. Yes, we do. Okay. So before we get to talk about this week's enlightening guest, I wanted to let you know about a few cool things that we are going to be doing. First, we are partnering with Andy Luttrell of Opinion Science Podcast, which if you haven't listened to, please go out and listen to. It's fantastic. And we're doing a series with Andy on the history of behavioral economics. Oh, that this is such a cool project. Andy is brilliant. And we've gotten to talk to some of the brightest and best behavioral economists, including a couple of Nobel laureates. Yeah, kind of <laughs> teasing the, you know, not, I don't want to bury the lead, but, you know, we're, we're just teasing out there. And we are not sure about the release date of this series, but stay tuned as we will be telling you more about it in future episodes. Yeah, this is going to be very cool. And in the meantime, obviously, listen, go out and listen to Andy's podcast. Oh, yeah. Um, but continue to listen to us. Don't just jump ship and go over to Andy's all time, all, all day. You know, he has, he has some good stuff, but hopefully we bring some value as well. We'll we'll have a link in the show notes to Andy's episodes. And so you can link over to there and, and just enjoy his show if you haven't already. And then I wanted to tell you about one other really cool thing that we're doing. So we are hosting a very cool, immersive two-day retreat with a limited number of openings. And I'm doing this with my friend, Michael Anschel. And this is a revamp of a retreat that Michael and I did for a number of years that mixes introspection, behavioral science insights, and skiing Mm -hmm. to create a truly unique experience where people can explore ways to improve their work and lives. It's called Winter Camp, and it's coming up in March of 2022. And I will have more information that will be available on our website coming up shortly and also in all the social media feeds that we have. You got me hooked at introspection, behavioral science, and skiing. Yeah, <laughs> this is going to be right. There are some wonderful analogies that you can get from like being out on the mountain and life and, and you know, leaning into the into the mountain and turns and how all that. Oh, it's fantastic. It's just an, an and it's a uh, beautiful. It's going to be in Breckenridge, Colorado. So, um, you know, we're going to have 16 slots open for people. And so uh, we'll have more information as that comes out. Uh, I think this is going to be a very cool event, Kurt. Uh, Okay, now on to the show. Let's focus on today's guest, and that is Torben Emmerling. Torben is founder and managing partner at Effective Advisory in Switzerland, and he is also a co-founder at GABS, which is the Global Association of Applied Behavioral Sciences, which we are we are both members. So we're actually Tim. I am not a member yet. (gasps) So it's only you, only you. I know. I'm 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 lackadaisical on that. You got to so, get that going, um, man. I, I apologize, but you're going to have to carry the weight for I the will. Behavior Grooves team on, on the Gabs membership. So, 
I will do so. All right. Well, and you do you do it really well, by the way. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Thanks about that, Kurt. <laughs> Are, are we on script here? When are we ever <laughs> on script? You know, that's that's the important thing. All right. So we had the pleasure to talk with Torben about his work, bringing behavioral science to both business and government. And Tim even managed to talk a little bit about music with him. Oh, yes. And that was very, very fun indeed. And with that, we want to invite you to sit back and enjoy a cool draft of behavioral science for the workplace and listen to our conversation with Torben Emmerling. Torben Emmerling, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Great to be on the show with you, Kurt and Tim. We are excited to have you. It's it's always fun talking with you. And so um, we are going to get started with a speed round like we always do. And you might have heard this one before because we ask it to everybody. But do you prefer coffee or tea? Uh, I would say I prefer coffee. A good Italian roast coffee, a flat white even would be awesome. A flat white? Very particular on your coffee, right. are you, Torben? All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would say. Do, do yeah. you, uh, this is supposed to be a speed round, and of course, all our listeners know it never is. Do you brew your own coffee or do you go out to get that coffee? Is that, or is there a mix? It's a mix. It depends on the time. Um, I'd say 60 or 70% of the time I do my own coffee at home. And then, yeah, 40, 30% of the time I pick up a very good coffee on the way to work. Yes. So yeah. and when you do your coffee at home, is it just plain brewed coffee or do you get fancy? Do you have the whole system set up and do any of that? I actually think about upgrading the system at the moment. So this is a very particular <laughs> point in time. At the moment, I trust, you know, this, this famous big Swiss food chain that does an awesome coffee made from capsules. And I also do spend some minutes in the morning to sort of create a nice milk foam and have a good ah, ca cappuccino. Okay. So, okay. so you, you do a little more than just yes. brew it and pour it in a cup. Okay. All right. Just these five minutes are important. I take them in the morning. Yes. <laughs> There's a ritual to part of yeah. that. And that yeah. it, it, and particularly because coffee has such an aroma and various different pieces, I think it's, it's part of that psychological start of a day because you've become it's this routine. It's this habit that you have. And so it sets the day off from a certain perspective. So, all right, we're, we're, we're going way, way down the deep end here. Kim, stop me. Stop me, man. Torben, imagine that you can have dinner with your favorite athlete, musician, or researcher. One-on-one, -on -one, who would you choose? Probably I would choose researcher then. And I would say... I would love to spend some time with, yeah, I'd say Daniel Kahneman. I know many people oh. probably say that before, but I think this gentleman has been so elementary to the field. He's been doing so much great work at the very early years when it was almost considered provocative to take a psychological perspective on economic theory. And I think a lot of different studies have been replicated or not been replicated, I think it would be an awesome, awesome conversation with him to look back on about 50 years of behavioral science research and reflect on a number of things that he discovered or he sees today that he hasn't seen before and or he would do again or not do again. So I think that would make a 
probably a very, very good and long conversation. I I would be a fly on that wall for sure. That would be <laughs> yeah. a fantastic conversation. All right. This may be relevant to you. <laughs> Which do you prefer, Swiss chocolate or German chocolate? Uh, of course, Swiss chocolate. <laughs> of course. This is a speed round answer. Swiss chocolate, full stop. <laughs> and, and by the way, just for the sake of listeners knowing, where are you dialing in from? Uh, from Switzerland, of course. Yeah, so, okay. uh, I'm based in Zurich, yes. yes. Zurich, yeah, okay. I know there are people that say Belgium chocolate, but I would even say no. No. Swiss chocolate is by far the best. Yeah, right. uh, I, I have a, a son who spent a lot of time in Europe, and uh, he's a circus performer and tours and goes, has been through every country many times. And he's like, there's just hands down, Swiss chocolate is the best. I, you know, we might have some vigorous arguments about that, but bravo. Okay, so it's let's- It's a speed round, Tim. No vigorous arguments allowed. <laughs> um, which is better, uh, to use behavioral science to persuade people to save energy or just tell them what they should do? Uh, this is also an easy answer, I think, is to use behavioral science insights to help them make better decisions about their- energy consumption and the use of electricity in general. Yes. Number one, of course. Why? Why is that? Well, I think we know from behavioral science that a lot of time we don't make fully rational decisions. So we're not conscious of our decision-making process. We're not always fully considered when we make decisions in any situations, in, in situations of uncertainty or in situations that are less appearing less often. And so these are essentially situations where, for example, how to choose your electricity provider, what sort of plan to choose and so on. And we found that with some easy steps, easy sort of support aids in, in the environment, we can help people make a lot better decisions. What type of energy plan to choose um, and how to sort of when to use energy and, and how to use energy a little less well, you've done a project on this. So tell us a little bit about the project. Obviously, that's some of the insights from there. But what was it that you guys were searching and looking for? What was the overall findings that you had on this? Tell us a little bit more about that. Yes, happy to do so. So this goes back about almost 20 months from today. So we've been contacted by the Swiss Federal Office of Energy to basically provide a toolkit and basic behavioral insights on how we can motivate organizations, so SMEs, to use less energy and increase their energy efficiency, and also how we can help them use more renewable energy sources. So it was basically a blueprint project. There was very little done before in Switzerland, and in comparison to many other countries, Switzerland is still very new in general, I'd say. There are some more advanced organizations, both public and private, but generally the country is is just getting started with working um, with behavioral insights in public policy. And so this was a starting point for us, as well as the Swiss Federal Office of Energy, to say, we want to use more behavioral insights. We want to learn more about behavioral insights and how we can leverage them to help organizations reduce less energy, which has a whole lot of benefits, lower costs, much better for the environment, much better for the future of our planet, and also like a lot of, lot of, lot of like much better for innovations both in the country and outside, and so on, and so on, and so forth. So a lot of knock-on effects for the future. And we spend around eighteen months researching more than 
90 papers and academic research studies on what we know about different factors that influence decisions around energy consumption. And we identified a number of clusters, one of them, for example, being change in physical devices, installations, change of defaults, but also elements like social norms, gamification approaches, and many others. And as a result, we presented a shortlist of 12 behaviorally informed strategies, behavioral interventions that can be implemented to help organizations reduce their um, sort of their footprint in electricity consumption. It was a great project. The collaboration has been amazing with the team and um, it has been also presented at conference in, in Copenhagen and Behave. And now we've been starting to implement a couple of these strategies, a couple of these 12 presented interventions um, in practice. And we're seeing a lot of very encouraging first results and a lot of encouraging collaborations from that. So still ongoing, still in the make. I'm so glad to hear that. Tell us, without going through all 12, have there been one or two of these interventions that have been particularly meaningful and impactful? Um, I picked two of them. So it's too early to say, fully see the impact because we're just in the moment of data collections. You can imagine these interventions take more than nine to 12 months to collect the data. Also, looking at electricity consumption, it's really difficult to sort of see an impact right away. It, it takes a month or two to see yep. really the impact on, on the bill and also sort of this, the, all the measures that were taken. But I'd say two are particularly in, interesting. One is in Switzerland, we've got a, a consultancy program where as an organization, as the CEO of an SME, even a big organization, you can call up a, an electricity advisor that comes into your company and then helps you identify potential to reduce energy, for example, isolation, for example, picking different plants, using different machines and so on. And we've, we're in the process of creating a shortlist for the top 10 interventions that have the quickest impact on electricity consumption. Something that is really simple. And as often in behavioral science, the simple things are the most impactful things. We would like to create clusters for different industries that show mm. what can be done the easiest and the quickest and what has the biggest impact. So it's sort of like um, a quick win intervention. And the second one is something I'm, I'm really happy or really excited about is we're in the process of replicating the famous O-Power study, the social norm study, where you basically nudge to, uh, people to reduce their energy by giving them a social comparison, sort of comparing your energy consumption to the consumption of your neighbors. And we're doing this for the first time for companies, which is really yeah. difficult because you don't have one decision maker. And that is a bit of where behavioral science and applied behavioral science differs. It's, <laughs> it's much harder sometimes to apply things in the field because we don't have a controlled lab environment or we don't have individual households where we've got millions of them and we can just target them. In this case, we first have to find clusters that allow us to compare organizations. For example, just really simple. No bakery is like any other bakeries. Some have like yeah. three ovens. Others have five or six or seven. Right. Of course, right. the bakeries with seven or eight ovens have a much higher electricity consumption than the others. So it's unfair to compare them. So we have to adjust loads of different metrics to have a meaningful um, sort of baseline or a meaningful comparison. For us, the most motivating thing has been that the organizations who are part of this and also the 
sort of the electricity provider that are part of this, this study, they have been super, super interested in, in, in behavioral insights and they're super excited to do this with us. And we're very hopeful because this, to my knowledge, has never been done before anywhere else. And uh, we hope to sort of also break some ice there and, and get more people to apply these insights in, in corporate and SME environment. I think it is really fascinating, the idea of applying that insight into organizations as opposed to households. And the again, you would think, oh, that would be easy. We just we mirror what was done in the O-Power experiment and we just do it. But you can't because of all of the the limitations and the restrictions that you had. So the idea that applied behavioral science is very different than the academic behavioral science, I think, is a really interesting piece. But you do more than just look at energy consumption. So if you had to describe your work, how would you describe what you do? <laughs> okay. We are fully specialized in, in professionally qualified behavioral science consultancy. So we work with leading private and public organizations on implementing behavioral insights in practice. So the applied side of behavioral science. <laughs> and we do this today with about 50% of our mandates in a public space. So energy, also health recently, quite a lot. Information, uh, prevention strategies, but also, yeah, change management and public inclusion initiatives during COVID, but also in any other sort of open public space in sort of municipalities, cities, cantons, or also the state level. And the other 50% of our work is private organizations. This includes like FTSE 100 firms, and but also smaller organizations that essentially you would like to bring behavioral science into their strategy uh, processes. And that, I'd say on two levels, one is sort of the inside perspective. We've been doing quite a lot of work in the ethics and compliance space, also the organizational development change in HR space, which is essentially all about like how does the organization work in about itself and with mm -hmm. each other. And the other part is, is essentially, yeah, the employee-client connection or relationship where we help organizations to be yeah, more effective in targeting their their customers and basically yeah, working with their customers. Yeah. So that is what that's what we're doing. Yeah. And on the, like a very high level. <laughs> that's great to have that, that high level Torben. Thank you. Would you mind taking a minute and, and could you describe uh, one of the projects that you've worked in? I, I, the public stuff is really cool. And I think, the, the work that you're doing with the uh, with energy consumption is fantastic, but let's let's flip it over to the the private side. Can you maybe with uh, one of the pharmaceutical companies that you've been working with? You know, is there is there an example that you could talk about? Sort of the the challenges that they're facing and how they're how you're helping them. Of course. So um, we're we've been working with a number of pharmaceutical and healthcare organizations, also a number of insurance companies, and so such a great field to be in. I was sometimes I I was asked. Why, don't you have an industry focus? Why don't you just work with, with uh, for example, healthcare organizations or with marketing agencies or something? I say, well, because we're in the business of behavior. So we're looking to why people do things they do, what causes them to do the things they do, and what actually helps them to change their behavior or how we can motivate them to change their behavior. And this applies not only to to like the state level, this applies to businesses, this applies to marketing, but this also applies to compliance. And so while we 
the same problems, basically, not the same, but in a very similar fashion that causes us to forget to buy milk and butter when we're at the <laughs> shop because we're overloaded and uh, we're sort of ego depleted. We, we have there are contextual factors that sort of take us away and we're not focused. Um, the same applies to ethical decision making in an organization where sometimes just I would say you can imagine in sort of an iceberg. I know this image has been used before, but just imagine an iceberg where people are aware of their ethical decision making, the things they do, being really in in the moment, aware of what's the right thing to do. This is just the, the tip of the iceberg. This is what you see. Most often, we're in stressful situations. We're negotiating prices. We need to make that deal. We need to have our healthcare practitioners buy our product. And sometimes in these discussions, we don't have the mindset of ethics and compliance, but we have the mindset of sales and, and sort of making our numbers. It is right that moment that we need to give people the right tools, frameworks that support them to not only make a business decision, but to make an ethical business decision. And as we said, the teams we've been working with and a number of healthcare organizations and insurance organizations, they essentially ask us about this and said, can you, can you come in and help us create not only another document, and I'm putting this quite provocatively, not just another legal document that has been written by the best lawyers in the world, but, and I'm saying, great, they did this. It's just a document from lawyers for people who want to read rules and principles. But what we need is one step further. We need something that people can understand how they can implement and live by these rules and how we, for example, provide them with a simple, with a simple decision-making framework, a simple checklist of five short decisions they can do on their phone to see what matters most in the situation and what is sort of the guidance that should be applied in the situation. I think it's brilliant, the concept of taking a code of ethics and thinking about it less from that legal perspective, which is important. You need to have that legal protection and that's why companies do this and all of those. But the idea of just having that sheet of paper, as you said, that is in legal-esque, the actual impact that that has on an organization, A, if it has any, in my opinion, is going to be one where it's going to be punitive and that, that you're doing it and you're, you're having people look out to see who is not in compliance and then you're punishing them and you're making an example of them. And so the way that you're changing behavior there is not because people want to do it or they're feeling it, but they're afraid and therefore they're going to be focused in on it, as opposed to applying the insights that we know from behavioral science about why people do what they do, how they act within certain contexts and, and situations and saying, let's use these insights to help not only design this code of ethics, but make sure that it gets applied in the appropriate manner, in the appropriate timeframe with these appropriate nudges or prompts. And we can make this so that it isn't a slap on the wrist backhand, but this is something moving forward that people are actually doing because we understand all of those factors, not all of them, but many of the factors that are influencing why they're deciding that decision in the moment. And you can, you can adjust for that. And, and I love this idea of checklists and keeping things simple and knowing 
the context that they're in and what is the emotional pressure that they're under and when is it most likely to to be non-compliant and how, what can we do in those times i it's i think more organizations need to be thinking in this manner as opposed to just checking the box yes we have a code of ethics and it's written down and we've communicated it to everybody and therefore we're we're safe we're good it's interesting that the doj and the guidance notes from last year they issued a statement in a paragraph essentially on that point and said it's no longer enough to just do checkbox exercises and provide mm. trainings. Going forward, people need to evaluate the effectiveness of trainings. And here we are right at the center of applied behavioral science. We need to evaluate if the things we're doing are actually changing the behavior of people. So the regulator demands that. This is the point, I think the last point where we need to think about behavioral insights and how to include them to create better programs, better checklists, better support that actually enables people to do the right, to, to make the right thing to support the organizational cause and to sort of protect not only their individual role in the organization, but the whole organization and the whole society. And I think behavioral science has just started to add a lot of a lot of great insights into this discussion and to sort of bring new perspectives into this. I give you another example, a very very simple one. In an, in an organization, we had a recent discussion to say how can we translate some of the pretty boring paragraph elements from global policy into something that is actually helpful. And I said, well, what is the most helpful thing in this policy? Do we know? It's like no. Can we just measure? where people scroll in a document. You can measure that. <laughs> it's easy. And if you see that from, I don't know, 5,000 employees, 4,000 who open this document always scroll on page five because they need to see paragraph 6.6. Well, what you should do to make it easier for people is to put paragraph 6.6 in very simple language and put it on the front of your internet page so that people can find this right away. Like, well, that's pretty cool. It's like, yes, most of the time, it's not a problem of, people who are really want to behave in a bad way, the bad right. apples. There's actually wonderful research on this. There's just 5% of the people who are actually like bad apples. Then there are some people that are really, really like always doing the right thing, 20%. But the most important part is sort of the gray zone in the middle, that people who are behaving contextually ethical, contextually in the right way. And these people are the ones that we need to target. These people are the ones that need support and if they go that extra mile and open up an internet page, look for the policy, open the PDF, and then scroll through 15 pages of, of legal language to find the right answer, well, that is great. But we would be so much better off as an organization to provide that point right away. And I hope that going forward, we'll be able to do this in an even more interactive way and provide people with like a smartphone app where they can ask a question and then sort of supported by bots and AI, we've been able to sort of sort of direct them to the information in a the document they're looking for, and if not, provide them in very easy contact to a specialist from ERC that gives them the answer right away. So these elements, is it's behavioral science, but it's also a lot of like making a lot of things easier. Common sense. It's exactly. just common sense to a certain degree. And yet, if it were so common sense, why didn't we do that in the first place? Right. <sighs> so I, I think that maybe, maybe what you're implying, Torben, is that without the behavioral science lens, might not have gotten there. Yeah, and I think this is, again, back to my point that we should not only apply like a one industry lens. If we look at, for example, the airline industry, I think fascination, fascinating industry because 
to my knowledge, one of the very, very few industries that applies a sort of a test and learn approach in a very, 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 very strong manner. If whenever something goes wrong in in the LN industry, all processes are stopped, looked yeah. at, turned around, evaluated in all detail. Every process is monitored. You've got a voice recorder, you've got a black box, you even have process manuals and checklists. And as soon as something goes wrong, all checklists are reviewed and changed. And the simple tool that has made airline travel safe to this point was, of course, technical advances, but most from a behavioral perspective, checklists. Yeah. Because we're humans. We forget things. It's totally natural for us to, to not be our best one day at work which isn't a problem for maybe an accountant or any other role. I don't want to put any like stereotypes out there, but the bad day for a pilot is something that can turn out really, really <laughs> yeah. bad for a lot of people. So yeah. what do you want to do? Create a checklist and make sure that all the things are in place that support them to make better decisions in the moment of uncertainty, in a moment of stress, in a situation where it really matters to be your best. Can we learn from this and apply some of that stuff in, in other practices? I'm not saying we need to put voice recorders in offices, but I'm saying we should actually, <laughs> that would be a really hard one, but I'm saying we just need to see when things go really turn sour, we should go back and, and look at why they turn so sour and what we could do, not only from a rules-based perspective and an information perspective, but also from a behavioral perspective. Maybe we find that every time things go wrong, well, all of these decisions have been taking late hour meetings after long days of work. And we should just give people a break and say, okay, let's not decide this today, but let's sleep over it and come back tomorrow. And if we still think this is the right thing to do, we do it. I would say this would, again, behavioral science, yes, a lot of common sense, yes, but this would help a lot of people make a lot of better decisions and a lot of organizations save a lot of money. Well, I think the thing with airlines too is they have that process in place so that you can report an incident without it being a negative mark on you that is going to derail you from moving up in the, the chain or get reprimanded in some way, that even if you're the one who makes the mistake, they much rather have that mistake noted and not covered up or tried to be hidden because we can learn from that. And I think that has been a huge aspect of why the airline industry has been able to make those changes, as you said. That safety, that trust, that psychological safety that has been built up has been just Im impressive, in my opinion. Absolutely right. And this is a topic we're, we're also working on right now with another organization is, yeah, psychological safety and the ability of people to speak up. How can mm -hmm. we create an organizational culture that is ready and welcoming to people to report mistakes, misbehaviors, and process failures. Most of the time, it's not, as I said, it's not a person that really wants to do bad and cause harm to an organization. Most of the time, it's a process problem. And you wonder why not more, yeah, why people don't speak up more often and more people speak up more often um, yeah. if they're all following certain processes. Because if you're hearing yeah. on the hall, right, many people are complaining about how badly structured things are, but no, none of them is really complaining and making a change. So fascinating and i think with yeah latest covid and sort of the change towards hybrid office and hybrid team setups we see great opportunities to sort of instill a bit more of that thinking and we see that especially technology is facilitating speaking up in a certain way that was not known before and i'm very yeah. i'm personally very very um optimistic that 
this change towards hybrid teams will also encourage uh, or at least facilitate psychological safety and speaking up in a, in a different yet in a very powerful way. Yeah. Context matters, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, much of this is contextually based. You, Harvard Business Review has recently published a really lovely piece that you created on on behavioral biases at work. And uh, they've, they've been treating you, <laughs> I think you said very well lately, which is pretty cool. Just briefly, could you just give us a quick summary of what people should look for in that piece, Torben? Yes, thank you for referring to this. This is um, a second piece we published just in, in June this year. It followed a piece on better strategies for uh, team decision-making. So again, when we publish, it's usually the result of research we did in a project together with an organization. So it's very much the applied side of behavioral science. And in this particular case, we first started off by looking into how can we help organizations make better decisions as teams? How can executive teams reach better conclusions in a more efficient way and in a more robust mm. way? And then COVID hit. And as we know, we've all been working remotely and we've been enjoying a lot of changes to our day-to-day -day work. And one of those changes was that most managers, most leaders from executive teams are now managing remotely, meaning they don't see their teams every day. They don't have the same type of interactions. And interestingly, most managers weren't prepared also to lead remotely. Right. And so right. this was like, we've all experienced a huge change and also huge expectations to be able to adapt. And so we looked into what has changed and what sort of what is the behavioral perspective on sort of managing remotely and what are sort of the pitfalls or the misconceptions that might arise, and which of them are the most prominent. We identified five of them, all-star biases that have a certain, <laughs> a certain impact on remote work situations, one of them being confirmation bias. Interestingly, that we see confirmation bias is, is very prevalent, not only in like physical meetings, but also especially in, in situations of, of remote work. And we provided some guidelines on how to counteract it, for example, by inviting colleagues to evaluate decisions from their point of view, let them speak first, disclosing priorities and motivations last, and sort of keeping a good hygiene, keeping a good mm. process, making sure that you have a devil's advocate at place. You can also do this digitally, uh, making sure that you've got different viewpoints that come into play to sort of break that confirmation bias. We looked into um, attribution bias. You know, we've got um, more sporadic, limited interactions, remote work. So it makes it difficult for us to really grasp team members' individual situations, and you might attribute certain behaviors to very wrong causes. And um, there might be, you know, we never know what's happening, what we don't see, and we don't really have a feel for that person. And um, we saw that in, in our research that a lot can be done by breaking this attribution bias, for example, by checking evidence, reflecting, getting other people's opinion on a certain situations, better understand colleagues' behavior from looking at our own behaviors, and then basically looking into Finding counterfactuals, finding, for example, free explanations, why a particular behavior occurred and how we could break it. We looked into groupthink, which has been covered, I think, also on your show and in other situations. Um, so I'm really short on that one. And then we looked into in-group effects and in the end also peak-end effects, ending with a peak. <laughs> it is very interesting to see that we're very much biased on recent interactions. So the recency effects of, and if you see someone is working hard, very really late, you might, because you have 
less interactions, you might be biased by that situation and you sort of might take this for granted for the overall interaction and work of your of your employee. And so we said, hang on, impressions of others' work effort and time are much more selective and limited than in physical interactions. And so you need to adjust your management style and you need to give people just different space to be their own, to work in a different way that works for them best when while managing kids, family, and other duties on their life. And um, we provided some guidelines on, on how that can be broken down, for example, by, by changing meeting rhythms, schedules, and also by just literally simple things like active inquiry about paths to specific results, not only looking at the results, but path process again, many more things. So that has been covered in that in that article and it's been it's been very well received, as you say. And um, it's now also been featured in the future of the workplace by HBR and there's more coming up on that point. So happy about that. That's awesome. <laughs> that really is. And and speaking of ending on a peak I think we have to talk about what's been on your playlist recently because I know that you're an active music listener, which is pretty fantastic. What uh, What's on your playlist these days, Torben? What's been on my playlist? So I'm just back on a, from a long drive from France back to, to Switzerland, and I listened to the last Nas album. So he just, uh, just released his last album, which I very much enjoyed. So I, I have to say I listen to a lot of hip-hop both german as well as english or u.s hip-hop i do think nas is one of the best out there and i then on the other side i also listen to a bit of rock music classics but also probably more originally maybe indie now a bit more like mainstream rock music i like the black keys a lot and yeah uh yeah i'd say these two music stars are like i know you you guys are very much into music, so I'm talking well, to Kurt is. Yeah. Kurt is. I'm, I'm, I, I just sit on the side mostly. I know you say this all the time, Tim, but I, I discovered in other episodes that you, you know quite a lot. I don't know if this is just by working so long with Kurt or if it's just you are like... <laughs> yeah. Kurt has been a fantastic mentor for me on, on music. Fantastic mentor on a small niche of 80s rock and roll, uh, alternative rock and roll, actually, not even just mainstream. So I might have influenced him slightly on that. The rest of it, he has uh, an encyclopedia knowledge, which always throws <laughs> me off when they start talking like, Oh, is that was in, that was the one that was in a G flat, right? And it was done on <laughs> on a, a instrument that was built in 1684, I believe. It's crazy. Torben, <laughs> thank you. This has been fascinating. It's been great. Your work is is really exemplary, and we are so thrilled that you were able to to join us. And thank you for all the great, wonderful insights. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed that conversation. As always, too short. Um, yeah. It definitely is. We could talk. We we didn't even talk about gabs. We didn't talk about yeah, oh my a God, whole bunch yes. of other things. So we'll get you. You know, we'll we'll need to have you back. We'll come back. And so we'll we'll talk to you at some future time. Thank you so much. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Torben, have a free flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our behaviorally scienced, business-informed brains. Are these getting longer all the time? It, like, we can't just have, like, an interesting brain or a water-filled brain or a music 
frame or <laughs> a water filled. I don't frame. know where that came from. But I like that. See, this is why you should maybe do some of these. You could no. you could come up with the water filled brain no. thing, and then we could <laughs> we could talk about streams and lakes and <laughs> rainfalls and all sorts of great things. No, I. No, I no, I could never, I could never do it. No, because I, I don't it, know. It be. they, they are getting longer. They're getting probably. I'm trying to do too much. I should just you know go back to the day where it was just like our our stupid brains, our you know yeah. inflexible brains, our creative right. brains. That one word modifier, as opposed to the, the multitude of trying to <laughs> link into the conversation. So why why would that happen? Why why do these get longer as time goes on? What is it about the my brain that says I need to fill these in with like more detail to fit with what we're trying to talk about? Novelty. I think novelty? it's your desire for for greater novelty so that this one doesn't sound like the last one and yeah. the last one didn't sound like the one before that and and we've got 260 some episodes behind us. So <laughs> it's, but we have never said water filled brains before. I can tell you that. And, and you know, we, I could have said that. I could have said our coffee filled brains. Well, me and um, right. you, you know, your tea. I mean, we could go a lot of different ways with this, but I don't. It's interesting. I do think you're right, though. I think there's novelty pieces there. I think that is absolutely 100%. And then trying to make it relevant, which I probably yeah. don't have to do. So, well, relevance is good. We like relevance. All right. Yeah. All right. So I think we've just probably bored our listeners to no end with this little deep dive into our own little way of, we have fun with doing this, this, but they don't really care. They care about what we talked about with, with Torben and what, right. what do you take out from that conversation, Tim? This wonderful, wonderful stuff about applied versus theoretical. Right. Mm. Like, like, let's just start with the whole idea that applied behavioral science is in some ways very, very different from what happens in the lab. Get right. And, and that why we need researchers in the lab, you know, talking to college students, doing whatever kind of work they're doing in the lab. We need that. We need, we need to uncover uh, some of the basic human tendencies at the same time, the applied behavioral scientists, the people who are in the field, much like you and me need to be, confirming and reiterating and defining the context in which this stuff actually works in the real world and and how it works. I think it's just both are important, but I think that they're different. I think you're absolutely right. And I love this concept of the lab work is vital. It is absolutely 100% vital. It, it often pushes the boundaries of what we're learning and where we can apply some of these insights. But the applied part I think is critical as well, not just from the way of saying, are we confirming what was found in the lab in the real world, but also in pushing that envelope and saying, mm -hmm. here are situations that we're finding things that don't necessarily match up with what the lab research is pointing to. And mm -hmm. thus it can lead to a component of a back and forth if there is that connection between right. researchers and applied scientists. And I think that is a key piece of this because it's not, not necessarily always the case, right? Sometimes applied people, we're just doing our thing and we're not taking back any of this information into our connections with, in, in universities or, or labs and vice versa. The labs and universities are doing this stuff without saying, how can we apply this in the real world? And I think there needs to be a better connection there. And I think that's a key piece. 
Yeah, I did some work with uh, Raghuram Bamaraju, who is at the uh, Indian Business School. And he, you know, we had some data from from salespeople in the real world and, you know, with real companies and how they act. Uh, but then Raghu went back into the lab and said, well, let's let's actually do this. Let's let's go backwards. Let, let's, you know, see how this works in the lab. Let's actually put, create some tests and some environments where people have to make similar choices and see how they play out and found it this tremendous symmetry between what was happening uh, in the in the field versus what was what what could be replicated in the lab. And that just makes the story stronger. Oh, my gosh. Well, that's one of the things about the applied side of this that I think is interesting, because in the lab side, what you're trying to do is isolate that specific component that is driving the behavior change. In the field, it's usually, A, if you're working with with businesses or even governments, they're less concerned about understanding, is it the you know, are we using achievement words or is it because we're framing <laughs> right. the email in a certain way or is it because we are using graphical images in there? You often intermix a number of different elements into what you're trying to do because you're ultimately at the end of the day trying to change some behavior. And if you see that positive behavior change, most organizations don't really care if it's coming right. from the framing piece, the word choice, or the visual images pieces that you're adding into that communication. They just yeah. care that you're driving the behavior change, which is different than in the lab. And they want it done fast. Just do it now. Yeah. And so I think there are some pieces there that, you know, I, I think organizations could be more looking at this and saying, yeah, but it would be really good to know. Is it the way that we frame it or the words that we use or different, you know, the images that we're, we're putting into it? Because that will help inform us for the next time that we're doing something that is similar. And it can maybe maybe really enhance this and looking at different things. The other thing is there's oftentimes not that control group inside of organizations. And so, you know, yeah. is the lift better because you're doing X versus Y? We don't know that. And so those are some key pieces there. But I think that mix that you talked about is really cool because if you can take that and then go back to the lab and say, well, this is what we saw in the field. Now let's break that down. Let's dissect this. That can bring some really valuable, A, it shows that it it works in the real world, but also here is the specifics of why it works. And I think that's fantastic. Getting back to this idea of the challenges that getting data from the field poses with corporations wanting it now, they want a whole bunch of things. They just want the best results, period. I've been doing some work with a uh, with an incentive firm on the East Coast of the United States recently, and their whole thing is they never talk about tests as tests or random control trials. They, they just talk about pilots. Yeah. They say, well, let's let's do a pilot. Let's just run a little pilot. We'll use a small group. We'll use, you know, a hundred of your dealers, not all four thousand of your dealers. Let's just use a hundred of them and and just try a couple of things in a pilot. And the clients are great with that. Yeah. <laughs> no, know? I love that too. <laughs> yeah. and, and there are clients. I'm I'm working with a client right now who basically said, Look, we listened to your episode on moving the middle within the organization. And, you know, one of the things you were complaining about, Kurt, was that you don't get to test this out. Well, we're going to let you test. You're going to we're going to be able to go in and do A, B testing on things. And so it's fantastic. So there are clients that do do that. Oh, that's so cool. And the fact of the matter is I love the word pilot because it does now it kind of mitigates some of the 
oh, we can't test this. You know, you're, you, you can't yeah. do a random controlled test. Well, yeah. no, but we can run three pilots simultaneously and we'll, <laughs> we'll do this here. And, All right. and then, right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. But the other piece that I thought Torben brought up that I thought was interesting is he was talking about working with an organization about applying behavioral science to different kinds of things. So this was about this compliance or code of conduct. Oh, right, right. And applying the uh, behavioral science as opposed to just a law perspective or just a other thing, but saying, let's think about how people actually behave and what is driving those behaviors and using the behavioral science lens to help us not just craft a checklist of do's and don'ts for an organization, but let's craft a communication or a, a, a set of principles that are able to be understood, utilized, and actually applied in the real world as opposed to sitting in a in a binder somewhere on somebody's shelf and you only bring it out when something goes wrong. Yeah, I have to admit that it's easy for me to think about applying behavioral science in sales, marketing, HR, that these are, I don't know, sort of the more bread and butter kinds of field applications for behavioral science and going to compliance and and ethics, I thought was really clever. I just yeah. thought it was like, why not, right? Because it's still, it's it's very important. It's very important to the organization and it's all about human behavior. So why not get beyond checklists and legal documentation and, and kind of the standard stuff, the way an economist or a compliance officer might've thought about it 30 years ago. Let's bring a behavioral science lens. Let's, let's look at it with fresh eyes. So I think A, I love that thought, right? So what other areas within an organization can we be applying behavioral science insights mm -hmm. into to improve how they work, whether it's the IT function in, in something, in, in how they're actually working together on a code or developing out a, a software solution. It could be in accounting. It could be in a number of different areas with different processes or different factors that go into this. This also got me thinking about Rory Sutherland, you know, talking with us about, you know, transportation. And then they just, he just wrote that new book. The book, yeah. Yeah, on, on, on transportation and this idea of saying, we don't have to always make that transportation like the length of time between the channel and, and you know, England and France. If we reduce it by two minutes, it costs us $10 billion. It's like, can we just make the ride more enjoyable so people don't care that it's an extra two minutes? And you may not have as huge of, of component with that. And I was thinking about that, like airlines and just the processes that they use to board planes and how everybody hates it. And can we apply some behavioral science insights to the boarding process of of airlines, can we think about amusement parks? And again, anytime there's a line, I think we could we oh, could right. probably apply behavioral science insight, right, yeah. on, on making that. But also, I remember this summer we were at the local amusement park here, and there's a ride. It was like the Mighty Mouse or something, right? And you know, one of those little roller coasters. And it was a you had to wait in line to get on there, right? And then B, you go up and you go around, and that's kind of fun. But then at the end, it stops. And you have to wait because while they're boarding, unboarding all these other people. And so you got probably good three minutes of just kind of sitting there in your car. Then it moves forward a couple feet and you sit there and you get, move forward. You can't get out until they, they give you the okay. You can't get out until you get to the part and they get the okay. Yeah. And you're just sitting there and it's boring. Yeah. And so the peak end rule, I'm like going, oh my God, you guys have totally, you know, 
had a fantastic ride. And what am I going to remember? I'm going to remember, you know, the negative emotion of standing in line waiting for this and then how boring this end was. And yeah, yeah, that again, from a game uh, amusement park ride piece, there are so many different things that you could be putting into that that would make that a different. And Disney, I think, does a fantastic job on just their lines and other things. And they're using behavioral science principles in that. So how about TSA? The queues at, at TSA. Yeah. How about making that a little bit more enjoyable? Not just, you know, I mean, the number of people who don't get ready, who don't get their stuff prepared, that they walk up to have their, their passport and boarding pass checked, and they have to reach into their purse or their pocket to grab it out. It's like, you've been standing here for 20 minutes. How could you not be ready? Well, think about that. You could just do elements like, you know, at this point in the line, you know, do you have your boarding pass? Check it, pull it out, check, yep. make sure here are yep. the things to look for. It, do you have your ID, you know, at this next point and just say, pull it out at this point. Just simple little things like that that you could put in there. That would be a fascinating study just to see, A, could that speed things up? It's very small incremental cost. And gosh, the benefits of that could be really cool. Could be fantastic. Right. So be. we just solved. We just solved a whole bunch of issues. Oh, thank goodness that we have behavioral grooves on the face of the earth to solve all these problems. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, with that, Tim, I think we got to wrap this episode up because I don't know how much better we could get than solving, you know, the TSA line <laughs> issue and yeah. uh, amusement parks. You know, there done. You yep. done, done, done. Check. Check. <laughs> all right. All right. So if you haven't rated us behavioral grooves on your pod device or service that you use, it would be fantastic. Absolutely wonderful. If you just like scrolled down right now on your phone and said, hey, I'm going to give these guys a five star rating or a four star rating. If you're going to think about a three or a two, maybe you can just do something else right now and forget about doing this. But but you do have to scroll down. That's right. You have to scroll through all the episodes or a bunch of episodes before you get to the place where you can do the rating. Yeah. And, and, right? and we got a lot of episodes now, so it's a lot of scrolling. So, <laughs> so just scroll. It's kind of fun. You can move your finger up and down. It's a game. How fast can you scroll? Yes. There you go. Yeah. Get down yeah. there. Leave us a rating. Write a couple sentences if you if you so desire, um, we it, it, it goes a long way. So it's one of those things like in the airlines, if you do that now at this point, what that means is that we will hopefully get additional listeners who can get some value from this in, as we get That's closer right. to that, actually bringing our TSA passport out and putting it up and people are actually going to, that was a bad connection, wasn't it? And I was trying to link that in there. It was you, a reach. You see how I was yeah. trying to do that? I liked it. I tried I and it. failed, but it was okay. There you go. I see what you were trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe more importantly, we might just want to ask listeners right now just to in, hope that they enjoy the conversation with Torben. Thank you so much for listening. And that this week you go out and find your groove. <laughs>